the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the program where we typically take your calls and answer your questions about the things that you care the most about, questions about God and the... Uh, and the historical Jesus, questions about the Bible, questions about worldviews and world religions. And of course, when I'm talking about the historical Jesus, I, I don't mean a, a Jesus who's the product of our imagination or or that somehow I'm somehow not talking about the Jesus of the Bible. It is my belief that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John present a historical description of the life, the words, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So just to be clear, 303-873-1935, that's the number if you want to join me on the program. Lots of things are going on in the news, and one of the things that has uh, been reported from a number of different news outlets, including uh, faithwire.com and I think CBN, which is the Christian Broadcasting Network, they've called the body of Christ to pray for Bruce Willis, who his family announced was stepping away from a- acting um, after a medical diagnosis. And the medical diagnosis is um, a, called aphasia. It's a medical term, which is... Um, an ever-increasing loss of the ability to understand or express speech. And um, I don't know if you knew this, but um, (laughs) yes, Bruce Willis and I are very close in age. He's 67 years old, and his family has uh, announced his diagnosis with this disease and um, they basically said that it's a challenging time for the family and that they express their appreciation for love and compassion and support. And, of course, um, again, even in the world, it would seem to me that people need love, compassion, and support. And, of course, Willis just um, had a birthday on March 19th, where he turned, well, 67. (laughs) And you may not know a little bit or know that much about aphasia, but it's a condition that literally progressively robs you of the ability to communicate. It can affect your speech, your writing, even your understanding of verbal cognition. So imagine that you have a kind of disease where you're hearing people speak and um, and you lose the ability to process the meaning of what they're saying. So 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. 
Burke, welcome to the program. Hey, Gino. Thanks for taking my call. Okay. Uh, you, you had talked to the last caller before the commercial break about uh, the, an abortion bill that apparently is in the final throes of getting passed in the state. In the state of and Colorado, I, yeah. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Could you kind of fill me in on what's happening? And I guess I... This is one of the times I wasn't able to listen to you when you talked about it before. Yeah, um, it's a a sort of a right to abortion bill. And it began, um, there were hearings um, that were held in the Colorado House for hours. It's called HB um, 22- gosh, I should know this. HB-221279, okay? HB-22-79. And on um it it passed the Colorado legislature after a, a, a lengthy debate. Now, again, this bill not only has the most draconian and by that mean I, I mean severe uh, abortion um, allowances. In other words, a woman has the right to have an abortion or can, uh, according to the bill, it says that, that the woman has the right to an abortion, and thankfully it does say, or to continue a pregnancy, as well as the right to refuse contraceptive care. Now, it, it says it would explicitly prohibit state and local governments from denying, restricting, interfering with, discriminating against those, uh, they, they refer to it, uh, Orwellian reproductive rights. So here, the, the idea is that there's no limits. In, in other words, a child um, doesn't have to have parental consent. The legislation would also declare that a fertilized egg, embryo, or fetus has no personhood rights under state law. So that's written into the legislation. So there's been several attempts in the state of Colorado to say, when does a person become a person with rights? And and the state of Colorado says, a fertilized egg, embryo, or fetus has no rights and will never have any rights. And then there was a debate. And 15 Republicans sought to dispel myths that some in their caucus would be likely to support the bill. And so now it's going to the governor for signing. Now, again, what's interesting about this bill is it would prohibit any opposition to amending the bill. It says – How can they do that? Uh, the, by writing it into in, into the, the body of the language. In other words, here's their statement, not making it up. Quote, the Reproductive Health Equity Act will enshrine the right to abortion access in our state's law, ensuring that every Coloradan is guaranteed their fundamental right to reproductive freedom and can make their own decisions about their life and their future. Now, a- again... What that means is that the state cannot, I repeat, cannot amend that this reproduct. In, in other words, if if the state says no, if the baby has a heartbeat, you can't kill it. Or hey, if if the baby is in the birth canal, you can't kill it. Or 
so the Supreme Court, by the way, heard oral arguments in December in a federal case, Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health, which is a Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The Texas law also has a heartbeat bill. So what this would do is ensure that Coloradans have access to late-term abortion. And it, it isn't likely to change however the Supreme Court rules in Dobbs v. Jackson. What it will mean is that you can have a, an abortion for any reason or no reason for any, at any time. I would like to say I'm surprised, but I'm not. Well, part of – yeah. So there's only two – countries in the world that have anything close to this bill. It's China and North Korea. That sounds about right. And so you, you, you have to wonder, what is it about, why, why is there so much mental, emotional, and legislative energy that goes into the Democratic Party that they says, here's the most important thing that we must do. We must write and pass an abortion bill that gives you the right to kill your child under any circumstance unless it leaves the birth canal. All right. Well, I hear the music, so thanks for... I am so sorry to have to tell you this. But if you want to know more, you can go to um, HB 1279 and read the text yourself. House Bill 22-1279. This is Gino Geraci. Thanks for joining me. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. Let's see who's up. Nick, welcome to the program. Hi, Nick. Oh, excuse me, Rick. Hi, Gino. I am so sorry Love for your mispronouncing show. your name. Yeah, no problem. Love your show. Uh, appreciate everything you do. I got a question. Um, I'm Christian, and I've seen some end-of-life, or not end-of-life, near-death experiences that people have had, and uh-huh. almost to a T, um, if they didn't have God in their life, they have God after them. Uh, they all feel this amazing sense of warmth and love. They often go or are really strengthened in their Christian faith, even if they were atheists before. Um, but you don't get this sense that whenever they have this experience, they get up there and there's this question of, you know, is Jesus your Savior or you're going to hell kind of attitude. Um, and like I said, they almost all say they felt God or Jesus was there or this warmth around them, this overflowing love that they had never seen. Most of them don't want to come back. Right. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? I do. <clears throat> There's a several, several thoughts that I have. And one is a, a great big principle that I hope will serve you forever and ever. The first principle is we do not evaluate um, our understanding of the Bible by our experiences, but rather 
we allow the Bible to help us understand our experiences. And and the reason why this becomes so important is what you just said. Uh, imagine you have groups of people like you just described. They see they have this experience where they see a tunnel of light. They see dead relatives. They see rainbow ponies. They see uh, a Christ-like figure. They and and they have that same conclusion that you just said that I don't know everything about everything, but there's life after death. And there is a growing group of people who have a a malignant experience where they experience demons and hell and fire and punishment. But those experiences aren't always talked about in the Bible. So, so, so part of the challenge that I have is to go, okay, what does the Bible say? So I'm, I'm one of those people who would say, I don't want to be dismissive of another person's experience. It's almost impossible, Rick, to be dismissive of a person's experience because that's their experience. So I can't say you didn't have that experience. I, what All I can say is tell me about your experience. And then they talk about it. And then they might ask me, well, what does the Bible say about this? And there's no specific scriptural support for near-death experiences. Obviously, there's a couple of situations where people have actually died and come back to life, like Lazarus, like um, you know some of the the resurrection um, stories that are told um, in the New Testament. But nobody offers information about this is what happened to me when I died. In Second Corinthians chapter twelve. Paul gives us the closest thing to a near-death experience. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. So even right from the, the start, we have this picture. Did he die all the way, or was this a vision? Most scholars believe Paul is talking about himself, that that maybe during one of those beatings where he is literally beaten almost to death or stoned almost to death, Paul says, God knows, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, he says, but God knows. What's interesting about it, he doesn't get, have permission, at least in his own way of thinking, about talking about what happened. So, so, so we've got that line of demarcation, near dead, actually dead. So we've got two groups of stories where you have people who, you know, they fall through ice and they're clinically dead for 14 minutes or, or 10 minutes or, you know, their brain and their heart functions are G-O-N-E gone. And my friend Lee Strobel talks about this in his book, The Case for Heaven, and also um, some near-death experiences that he relates from our mutual friend, J.P. Moreland, who talks about people in hospital rooms having these experiences where they're leaving their body and they're describing things that they couldn't possibly be able to describe if they were, quote-unquote, conscious. So is it I, – I think it's impossible – for us to draw on those experiences in order to inform us about the reality of what literally does happen when you die. So, so I don't mean to be 
vague, but but what I would say is, does the Bible support that there's life after death? Yes. Does the Bible support a place of the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead? Yes. Does the Bible support rainbow ponies? N- no. Um, one of the things that I find a little bit disturbing is that people are open to hearing about other people's experiences and less likely to believe what the Bible says about these most important issues. So the the way that I try to bring a little measure of um, sanity is to say, let's evaluate our experience in light of what the Bible says. And so if the Bible doesn't quote unquote support the experiences, does that mean the experience is invalid? Not necessarily. Um, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. Some of us had experiences with hallucinogenic substances. Now, I happen to know that if you take LSD or mind-altering drugs, is it possible that you have hallucinations and experiences? And those experiences are very real. I mean, in other words, you understand where I'm going with it. The experience is real, but the perception that occurs during those experiences, how do we judge them and how do we evaluate them? So the Bible is silent regarding near-death experiences. But I'm going to suggest to you, for the most part, it's silent. And scientific research, I think, is suspect in this sense. Imagine you have two trains of thought. Information that seems reliable and information that seems less reliable. Or remember you have possible things like experiences that are faked, experiences that are imagined, or even experiences that are informed from non-biblical sources. And by that I mean drugs or, or demonic spirits. Now having said all of that, it, it makes perfect sense to me that we can't just be dismissive of so many people having this experience and, and, and then the experiences have certain characteristics that seem like shared characteristics. Got it. I, I totally appreciate that. I, I, my initial response was, well, take the Bible as primary. And if these people support what the Bible's saying, and like I said, a very high portion of them increase their faith and their love to other people after some of these experiences, well, that could certainly go along with a biblical premise. Right. So um, to me, the, part of the biblical premise is this. Does the Bible teach what what some people have called universalism. In other words, that there's an unconditional regard that no matter how good you are, no matter how bad you are, no matter if you have a relationship with Christ or you have no relationship whatsoever with Christ, that you go to this universal place of love and acceptance. I don't think the Bible does that. Yeah. uh, Well, the Bible actually doesn't teach that. But what do we do with the experience that people have that said, I don't know Jesus and I don't care about Jesus, but I saw Jesus when I had my near-death experience. (laughs) Hey, thank you for your call. 303-873-1935.
Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. Happy to take your call. It's 303-873-1935. 303-873-1935. And just a couple of quick news items before we move on. I, I do want to take your call, 303-873-1935. There was a question about judgments in the Bible and um, I am going to try to answer that question um, about judgments. Three zero three eight seven three nineteen thirty five. 1935 But back to the news. Um. Russia bombarded areas near Kiev or Kiev, if you're going to say it like the Ukrainians say it, and uh, and Chernev in the north after they pledged after the Russians pledged to de-escalate. So there was talks in Turkey. They were talking not Turkey. They were talking in Turkey. They pledged to de-escalate. Apparently, they did not do that. There seems to be growing evidence from the State Department and other intelligence outlets that is suggesting that President Vladimir Putin has been misinformed by his advisors about the Russian military struggle in Ukraine. That, according to United States intelligence, it's very, very difficult for me to believe that um, Vladimir Putin, as the head of state and and Russia has a sophisticated intelligence network itself and certainly has a way of uh, communicating information. So this is a, a troubling uh, a, a troubling bit of information from the um, from the United States intelligence community. Also, Zelensky. The president of Ukraine said he discussed sanctions and aid during a phone call with President Biden today. And, of course, an additional two million children have been forced to flee Ukraine. That, according to UNICEF. Now, again, just a few days ago, already half of the children um, in Ukraine had been displaced. So, again... Keeping an eye on some of this information. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. And um, let's see if I can find it. There. The, so the, the question becomes about judgments in the Bible, 303-873-1935. There are several, several different judgments that are mentioned in the Bible. And of course, in the growing current cultural circumstances that we find ourselves in, a lot of focus for Bible teachers has been away from the gospel. And you'll remember at the beginning of this program, I wanted to talk about the gospel and and did talk about the gospel and what it is. Um, That doesn't mean that we can't talk about justice or judgment. The psalmist in Psalm 45, 6 says, a scepter of justice will be 
the scepter of your kingdom. So according to the Bible, justice and that scepter, the scepter of justice, that scepter isn't just, it's a symbol of the right to rule. And then when you call the scepter, the scepter of justice, it becomes a way of thinking about how God governs. So it's the Lord Jesus who is the judge of the earth. Um, in John five twenty two, Jesus says, the father judges no one, but he's entrusted all judgment to the son. And you'll remember in Revelation chapter five, verse five, Jesus alone is the one who's worthy to open up the scroll or what some Bible teachers have called the title deed to the planet earth. It says, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. So when Jesus says the father judges no one and has entrusted all judgment to the son, it would appear that the Lord Jesus, the biblical Jesus, is the one who judges all people in every age, man, woman, child, Muslim, Mormon, Mennonite, atheist, agnostic, cynic, skeptic. And so the Bible speaks of judgments that have already happened. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 24, you'll remember there was a judgment on Adam and Eve. God banished the first couple from the Garden of Eden for violating his clear command to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That judgment affected all subsequent human beings who live on the earth and all of creation. In Genesis three seventeen and 18, he says to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. He talks about thorns and thistles. In Romans chapter 8, verse 20, Paul says, for the creation, that means the visible universe, I'm going to use the term matter and energy, planets, um, everything, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, Adam and Eve were judged. The ancient world was judged in a worldwide flood in Genesis chapter seven. And it's repeated in the new Testament where the, where the new Testament writer talks about that, that, um, that God judged the world in a worldwide flood, um, in the time of Noah and that this flood destroyed all of mankind and all of the animal world. And only Noah, his family and those that were led into the ark survived. Now, obviously, there are sea creatures and and ocean-going creatures that um, were able to um, survive the flood. So the judgment of Adam and Eve, the judgment of the antediluvian world, the judgment of the Tower of Babel, 
Noah's post-flood descendants remained in one location in defiance of God's command. Now, again, it would seem that this judgment isn't just simply for disobedience, and it isn't simply for refusing to go out and populate the world, but also because of the creation of this religious system that is a singular religious system that is in rebellion against God. But you'll remember that God confuses their language. And it's in the confusion of that language that the people groups are dispersed over the face of the planet. Now, this creates a sort of a judgment that results in the fact that human beings both isolate, congregate according to language, which creates people groups or ethnos. And so it would appear that nationalism, and by that I mean separate people groups and nations, become a part of God's plan and a part of God's will. Will those nations and people groups, will those borders eventually disappear And will the world eventuate in a one-world government? According to the Bible, that's exactly what's going to happen. But it is that one-world government, in part, that will be the recipient of God's judgment in the future. And so, there are judgments that have already occurred there's judgments that are occurring right now. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Matthew, welcome to the program. Hey. Hey. Hey, is there a way to contact you without calling you on the radio? Um, you can call the church at 303-933-8733 and leave me a message. You can call the station. The name of the church again? It's Calvary South Denver. Calvary South Denver. Well, you've got the topic I mentioned, but I don't want to go into that on the air. Um, I'd rather go back to what I was talking about last week. So, uh, Matthew 22 about 11 through 14. Um, so God invites the wedding guests. They make excuses. And then he says, go out onto the hedges and the highways. Invite anybody who who's going to come in. And then they come in. And he says something like good or bad. But uh, that part I still don't really understand. So, And then he says his servants. So he's just not talking about angels. He's talking about his servants. The servants go out. They invite anybody who wants to come in. Right. So, well, I guess it's the the, the wedding feast, and anybody who wants to come in can come in, and then uh, one person comes in, and they don't have a wedding garment on. Right. It would seem that the wedding garment, remember, becomes a type and a picture of receiving Christ. So when the king, remember, this is a parable. 
And an, an, a parable is an earthly story that describes a heavenly truth. When the king notices the person who's not wearing the wedding clothes in verse 11, he's asked how he came to be there without the right garments. And the man has no answer. And he's promptly ejected from the feast outside into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he goes to what you talked about earlier, for many are invited, but few are chosen. So I think now, again, the king in this parable that Jesus is giving is the father. And the son who's being honored at the banquet is the son, Jesus, who came into his own, but his own didn't receive him in John 1.11. Israel held the invitation to the kingdom. In other words, this invitation is extended to the Jewish people because salvation is of the Jews. But when it came time for the kingdom to appear, they refused to believe it. And so prophets like John the Baptist had been murdered. The king's reprisal against the murderers can be interpreted as a prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction at the hands of the Romans. But more broadly, the king's vengeance speaks of this desolation spoken of in the book of Revelation, that God is patient. He's patient. He's patient. Now, now that it's not because the invited guests could not come to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And remember, everyone had an excuse. So then the wedding is extended to anyone and everyone. They're not Jews. Who are they? They're strangers. Well, are they? But it says good and bad. Well, but I'm thinking that this means people who you would normally not invite to a wedding. These are sinners, prostitutes, what you and I would call, what everyone would call evil people. But so, so when it's talking about good and bad, in just broadest terms possible, there was this sense that the Gentiles were bad people, that they weren't good people. They're bad by and large. They're unclean. Um, so this portion of the the parable, I think, is foreshadowing the rejection of the gospel by the Jewish people, and so the the this wedding garment, I think, is instructive. It would have been a gross insult to the king to refuse to wear the garment provided for the guests. Now, let me just give you kind of a a, a, a sort of a cultural um, illustration. If you were to go with me to Israel and we are at the Wailing Wall, before you can approach the wall, you're handed a a kippah, which is the hat. In other words, it's customary to cover your head when you go to the wall. Heads of state. I know that. Yeah, heads of state, whether you are the, the president of France or the president of the United States or the president of Argentina. It doesn't matter how noble you are. The Pope, it doesn't matter who. Everybody covers their head when they go to the wall. So in this culture, everyone is given a garment. It's a, it's a, it's a festive occasion that's marked by festivity. So the, the person is caught wearing his old clothing. And so he's going to be oh. removed from the celebration. 
So this is Jesus's way of teaching the inadequacy of self-righteousness. So God has provided a covering for our sin. It goes all the way back to the story in the book of Genesis where Adam and Eve try to cover themselves with fig leaves, but God himself is going to have to, to cover them. He's going to have to kill an animal and then wrap their bodies in this animal skin. And so the to insist on covering themselves would be to be clothed in filthy rags, Isaiah 64. We've all become like the one who's unclean. All the unrighteous deeds are like a polluted or filthy garment. And so Adam and Eve, they try to cover their shame. In the book of Revelation, in heaven, people are wearing this white robe. Now, again, you know, people make fun of the Bible or they'll make fun of white robes or whatever. But we discover, according to the Bible, that these that the whiteness of the robes is because they've been washed in the blood of the lamb. Now, That means the people who are wearing the robe, not the robe itself, but that the people wearing the robe. So these are the people who have trusted in God's righteousness. And so just as the king provided a wedding garment for the guest, God provides salvation broadly for humanity. Our wedding garment is the righteousness of Christ. We wear him. In other words, he is our clothing. And so when we think about religion in general, religion in general has substantially this idea of human beings being good enough in order to make their way to God apart from the cross of Christ. And this is this is the meaning. That's impossible. That is impossible. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And so for his crime, and it is a crime, by the way, for his crime against the king, the person who's improperly dressed is thrown into outer darkness. How did that person get into the, the wedding? Though? Well, remember, not every single point of 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 the, the thing has an explanation. You know, it's sort of like, and again, I don't mean to be rude or disrespectful, but have you ever watched a movie like Star Wars or something else? And you're asking those questions. Well, how did this happen? And how does that happen? Um, and, of course. And, and, and of course we do, because we want the story to have coherence. But in this particular instance, I'm going to suggest to you that it's not possible. In other words... I- Anyone who comes up some other way is a robber and a thief. Right, right. I'm going to suggest to you no one will be in heaven accidentally or who have snuck in. And no one will be there um, uh, unless they belong there. Okay. Hey, I hope that's been a fun conversation for you. Just thinking about it. I'm just, you know, you can imagine I think about it all the time. I know you do. (laughs) Hey, thank you for your call. Enjoy your evening. This is Gino Geraci. I have got to go. Hey, by the way, if you want to know more about the Marriage Supper of the Lamb or the meaning of the parable of the wedding feast, I'd really encourage you to go to our website, gotquestions.org, gotquestions.org. Your questions, biblical answers. This is Gino Geraci. I'll be back tomorrow. I'll take your calls, answer your questions. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.